Hello, and welcome to the Anti-Racism Daily Podcast. My name is Nicole Cardoza, and this podcast focuses on tangible ways that we can dismantle white supremacy and create a more equitable future for us all. My name is Andrew Lee. I'm Managing Editor for Anti-Racism Daily, and I'm here with Noni Session from the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, a community organization doing really innovative work to combat a devastating crisis of housing affordability in Oakland, California. So many areas around the United States are witnessing an inherently violent and white supremacist process known as gentrification. So I'm really excited to talk to Noni about community resistance in one of the areas where gentrification and racial displacement is the most pronounced. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm happy to be here. You're in Oakland, California, in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's a place where a lot of people know that there's a real crisis around housing affordability, and that has real, really severe effects on folks who are living there. As someone born and raised in Oakland, what does this crisis look like in concrete terms? It looks like the loss of communities and histories, while the folks who are supposed to guide and protect our cities stand by uh, seemingly with their hands in their pocket. Um, it looks like a kind of um, sort of tent empire rising up around you as high rises continue to go up at an alarming rate. It looks like well-paved boulevards and running parks while uh, folks sit across the boulevard with a paper cup panhandling for change. Personally, as a third-generation Oakland native, I find it dismaying and embarrassing to myself and to my family and my history and my city. Could, could you say a little bit more about what brought you to the work you're doing today with the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative? Yeah, that arrival was actually kind of unintentional. I'm actually a cultural anthropologist. Um, I did my work in Nairobi, Kenya, um, on development experts um, installed by the United Nations Development Program into the city. I simply came home to my childhood home to finish writing my dissertation draft uh, before applying for um, some positions, maybe at a small liberal arts college somewhere, and starting what I perceived to be my career. After uh, about a year home, I looked around and realized that I was living in uh, what they used to call during the Depression, Hoovervilles, that I was living amongst Hoovervilles. And I couldn't understand why that was the case, given how much housing stock actually is out here. How many empty units in high-rise buildings I perceive just driving around the city on a regular basis. And I kind of, because I had become fascinated with urban cities while living abroad, I kind of wanted to understand what was happening in my city. So I did the simplest thing a person does, and that was volunteer. 
and it became a whole sort of accidental organizing arc um, that landed me in the founding um, staff collective for the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. I started with supporting a new friend on holding bartering events where we were doing an exchange of goods and services and I was able to talk about kind of the fictitious nature of money and how networks are actually what supports um, wealth building and stability. And then I started supporting another group in organizing Black picnics. And I really came to the awareness that it was still pretty political for Black folks to use public space in their own city, which I found pretty surprising. And then it sort of escalated from there in terms of um, the politicized nature of my uh, service to my community. And I was tapped to found and Black People's Assembly called State of Black Oakland, responding to a national call from Kali Akuno and um, Cooperation Jackson in that we needed to reignite Black voice block in cities um, that were formerly sort of bastions of, of Black activism. And from there, it turned out into all-volunteer grassroots city council campaign, where we contested for a very important seat in District 3, the seat, in fact, that had been throwing the doors wide open to unchecked speculative investment in West Oakland. And for folks that don't know, West Oakland really is the, the economic gateway to the rest of the Bay Area, the smaller cities. So as Oakland goes, so does Berkeley and El Cerrito and Hayward, et cetera. And from the city council campaign, which we only came within, we came within 1,500 votes of winning the seat from an entrenched incumbent. And we really took that as a referendum for um, what we were sharing during the campaign, which is a vision of collective economics, access to governance in our seat, and really a sort of localized community um, vision um, that would really solidify unity within the neighborhoods and our voice in City Hall. After what we really considered a win, I started working with Mandela Grocery, uh, the only grocery cooperative we've had in Oakland ever, the only grocery store within three miles of the flats of West Oakland, and the only Black-owned grocery store since my father's grocery store closed when I was a young person. And we decided to bring more capital to cooperatives and start more Black cooperatives. And that is where I encountered uh, folks who were uh, contemplating a concept like EB Prep. And I volunteered to help launch the cooperative part of the vision. And then within about a year, uh, they hired me as the executive director. And as part of the original volunteer staff collective, we hired the other volunteers as the finance director, the new projects director, and the community relations director. That's Ojan Mobachahi, Shira Shaham, um, Marissa Askar, Gregory Jackson, and myself. We were the founding staff collective, and then here we are four years later. You mentioned earlier the situation for unhoused people in Oakland. You talked about tent empires and Hoovervilles sitting next to empty units that already exist. I think a lot of people have sort of a, a common sense notion that the solution to housing affordability problems is simply to build more housing. 
that if something is expensive and you have more of it, um, then the price will go down. And that seems very different from the work that you and organizations across the country are doing to confront the housing crisis. Could you say a little more about that? Yeah, that assumption is a bait and switch. It's a it's a honeypot. The most recent sexy terminology used to to cover up what what a shell game that assumption is was this three three part concept: protection, um, preservation, and production. Meant to signal a, a holistic approach to this so-called housing crisis. When what it actually did is, does in fact, is disappear that we're not in a housing crisis. We're in a distribution crisis. If you look at some of the most expensive cities in the nation, uh, 2017, we taught our median um, rent for a one bedroom reached $3,500. And at the very same time, there were 20,000 empty housing units in the Bay Area. So if you do some simple math, you can see that that excess of unit availability, while having not only 7,000 people properly homeless on the streets, we're, we're, that does not even account for the, the 50% of renters in Oakland are rent burdened, meaning spending 50% or more of their income on rent. When 60% of Oaklanders are renters, that's a pretty high number of folks who need housing that stays in alignment with the, the, the income they're able to um, get. So the same sort of bait and switch of trickle-down theory that argued if we build uh, more wealth into the, uh, the elite classes, that that capital that we fill their cup with would spill out of their cup and, quote, trickle down to those at the bottom. We know that we have um, pretty effective wealth hoarding mechanisms that make sure that the cup grows, not that it overflows and spills down to those at the base of the goblet. And that's what's happening nonetheless with this housing production and preservation structure. As there is a nod to protection and preservation, folks zoom straight to the third one, which is production. A profit-seeking with profit front-loaded into all of the financial calculations for what it will cost to produce a unit which is directly in service to a mathematics that um, insists on the lack of feasibility of what is called affordable units without government subsidies. So when I mention it's a shell game, it's moving one set of capital out of uh, uh, government coffers that um, in, at least rhetorically is intended to relieve this this experience of Oakland's renters into the pockets of developers whose priority are to um, gather a certain range of profit from any of their activities in the name of serving 
the production of housing that will support Oakland's needs, um, again, rhetorically, to create affordable and accessible housing for multiple ranges of salaries. And all of those numbers are really pegged at this baseline called affordability. But again, as of 2017, affordability hit 80 to $100,000. And the average Oaklanders, Black Oaklanders salary at that point in time was $36,000. The average white Oaklanders salary at that point in time was $80,000. So even in this assertion that these systems of, of capital movement are seeking to provide affordable housing, it's still pegged at a rate that excludes the 50% of the 60% of Oaklanders, not to mention at all in any way those who fall below that 80,000 peg. And the crisis goes on. You mentioned that there are at least 7,000 unsheltered, unhoused people in the city of Oakland. A lot of people say, when talking about unhoused people, that the reason why there are so many unhoused people in a given area is because people are flocking there because of the quality of resources they can get. Um, And that presumably if we cut those resources, unhoused people would go somewhere else. So as someone engaging um, with the dynamics that are displacing and unhousing people in Oakland, when we're talking about these tent empires and thousands of people living on the street, where do those folks come from? Well, just for the sake of humanity, the first question before that is where do they go? Uh, Just Cities put out a report in maybe 2020 demonstrating that 50% of the folks who are lying on the pavement each night are Oaklanders, literally lying outside of the homes in which they used to reside. So, I mean, um, I think our numbers have reached something like 9,000 or 10,000 now. So even if you if you prioritized housing folks by I don't know most prior zip code when they had a re- roof over their head that means you could care for 5000 people you could cut the homeless population by half so you know people use those kinds of arguments to um deny a sort of a humanistic obligation to help folks That is specifically referring to folks who are lying on the pavement, having their dinner and their naps every night outside. Oakland's population is currently 400, about 400,000. 60% of those folks are renters. 240,000 folks are renters, right? And if 50% of those folks are rent burden, 120,000 people need help with a moral rent rate or better jobs or a different configuration between housing and income. You talked earlier about the importance of 
social support, um, especially for Black communities in Oakland. And it seems like, from what you're saying, a lot of these communities, um, these community connections are being threatened by dislocation from rising rent prices. What, what does that look like? And who are the, the people who are benefiting, um, who are able to pay those prices? I'm thinking about how, in this moment, how displacement serves the expansion of, of, of more far-flung, the, the expansion of the revenue base of more far-flung areas, like Tracy and Antioch and Stockton, uh, these new um, municipalities that are developing a revenue base from the displacement of communities in the urban area, which is now desirable, more desirable to um, wealthier and affluent residents than it has been for the last 20 or 30 years due to the demands of tech labor, due to consumption demands. Um, So first of all, it looks like that. It looks like if you imagine a little uh, current flow, there are flows of people moving further and further away from jobs, further and further away from political and legal advocacy, but it looks like an outflow of, of bonded communities and an infill, if you will, of new individuals from disparate places in the United States and sometimes outside of the United States, becoming a new community on the basis of profession, on the basis of consumption practices, and on the basis of socioeconomic status. So shifting in many ways out of a working class demography, there's still a service class that that lives here. Um, They appear to be disappeared, but um, a few years ago, we did a community study um, with Mandela Grocery and door knocked about a thousand doors in the area called the Flats. And we realized that this, this displacement project is in no way complete. So there is sort of an, a non-visible, some legacy Black community, some new um, Black community that still resides. But the, the revenue base, the economic base, is really split between upper middle um, for the Black folks and then service class. There is a multiracial influx of uh, creative class, uh, but really what you don't see are a lot of Black faces and definitely no uh, local Black faces, little to no local Black faces. There has been, up until the pandemic, a definite uptick in high-salaried tech class and um, venture class. Uh, however, the count is hard because most of their so really two different cities developing, um, and it's pretty um, dismaying at times to um, see a fifty dollar brunch across the road from a soup kitchen. Groups like your organization, the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, um, are are looking at these problems and looking at the gap between the Oakland of today. Could you share a little bit about what the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative is 
and the work that you're doing uh, today? The East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative is a people of color-led, multi-stakeholder cooperative that buys land and housing and gives it to Black and Brown Oaklanders. More specifically, we support everyday Oaklanders and folks rooted in the East Bay to um, connect, organize, fundraise for, and acquire land and housing that they govern autonomously for the long term. We bring in transformative capital, meaning that we do capital campaigns and sell investments into our work that is non-extractive at 1.5% return, um, which is about what you need to create uh, land and housing acquisitions for folks that they can maintain the debt on. We educate and organize our body of community owners to be part of this conversation and this vision, even if we can't specifically launch a project with or for them. We help our resident owners build out um, cooperative governance mechanisms and asset maintenance plans so that they can own their um, land and housing acquisition for the long term. We work with um, mission-aligned lenders, um, foundations who are trying to deploy capital to shift their practices and their conventions around what is considered non-extractive capital and transformative capital. And we build and develop low-cost real estate projects to hand on to our community leaders or rather our resident owners as we find them. And we've just recently launched a $50 million land and housing fund so that we can continue to acquire uh, more mixed units uh, and more multi-unit apartment buildings, um, some single family homes if the conditions are right, um, in order to increase uh, Black and Brown Oaklanders' access to permanence, to capital, and to the, the political and economic base in Oakland that is really only responsive to landowners. So in this model, um, the model of a, a permanent real estate cooperative, if I'm living in my home, who is the landlord? Well, what we do is we mimic um, home ownership or ownership through uh, internal bylaws and covenants we make with the folks we call our resident owners. Those might be the people you call tenants who would be renters forever. Um, they own the land and housing we acquire by dint of being a member of the co-op. So the staff owners are owners, the community owners are owners, the resident owners are owners, with all three of the former with voting power. There's a fourth category the investor owner, which has limited voting power as we want control to be grounded in the folks with the least resources as opposed to the folks with the most resources. Uh, investor owners can vote on the finance director. Um, uh, and so we make minimum maintenance agreements with our resident owners. Um, we we uh, give them right of first refusal to the land if we ever, for some reason, become insolvent. And we have elaborate agreements that um, allow them to make uh, collective decisions about their, their house, their land, and how they want to. So it's a co-partnership. Um, so by law, technically, EBPREC is the landlord. 
Um, but what that means is, is that our resident owners are their own landlord by dint of being a controlling member in the co-op. And I think I'm using controlling member a bit improperly. However, our bylaws, we also restrict ourselves in our bylaws from using the land exploitatively or charging exploitative prices. And we also are building out our base so that we can begin to return capital to our resident owner so that they can build a kind of a cash account that allows them to do other things in the world, which is one of the benefits of owning. Um, in addition, they do not pay the same quote unquote rents. We call them lease shares for the duration of their life there as we pay down the cost of the project. So too does their costs go down. Eventually, once the mortgage is paid off, they pay what any other owner pays, which is maintenance, utilities, emergency account. So those are some of the critical benefits of ownership that um, we have built into the EPPREC model and the sort of anti-landlord model we're trying to create because our goal is to recreate ownership and control. And you don't do that. You can't do that by, if you will, lording over folks with your economic power. You do it by sharing and extending your economic power to the folks that you work with. Something that I've encountered when talking about gentrification is that a lot of people seem to see it as an automatic or inevitable process. On one hand, communities that are at risk of displacement or undergoing displacement um, can, can see um, gentrification um, just as the latest step in a long, long history of exploitation and racism, um, it's especially because um, so many communities have already had um, extremely violent historic experiences of forced displacement to get to the communities um, that are being gentrified today. And on the other hand, um, I've talked to people who are more affluent white people moving in to poor neighborhoods of color who say, you know, what can I do? I live here, but there's nothing to be done. And it seems like what organizations like East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative are doing is articulating very clearly um, that, that people can, that there are choices, as you said, involved in the decisions that create displacement, that the local government is making conscious decisions, that the federal government is making conscious decisions um, to bring in one population and to disperse another, that developers have a decision to invest in certain communities and disinvest in others, that affluent white people who move into a majority-minority city like Oakland have a choice to own to have all-white social networks in Jack London Square and to call the police on their neighbors. So with that in mind, what are the asks um, that your organization would make for people to concretely take a stand against displacement and to support community survival and revitalization? 
I want to I want to start by saying one one thing um, about this this concept of what are the ask because it's very thinly sort of referential to what are the demands and those 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 approaches really rub me the wrong way. I think that part of the challenge is this this idea that there is an inevitability to economic violence to the imbalance of economic power on a racialized basis. This idea that I, that I or anyone else who has not only the right to live, but the, 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 the history and legacy in a community must request from the dominant um, economic and racial group the right to be or an affirmation of our right to be the ask or the what should be kind of like um, part of any um, anti-racist and pro-human person's framework is the awareness that the inevitability of economic violence rests with each of us. So coming into a new community um, as a wealthy person, if you entered into a, a, a new affluent community, you would be quite deferential to your new neighbors. You would attempt to greet them or um, join in on um, um, economic practices that supported um, the stability of the community as a whole. And, and, and I want to say one other thing, just as an example of, of, of this of how non-inevitable economic violence is um, and yet par for the course uh, because we presume that um, this economic violence you see is happening is because, oh, well, Black folks didn't manage to build a revenue base for themselves. Whether you acknowledge economic interference or not, you're like, well, people are poor and I have to protect myself and it's dangerous. And, you know, I don't know how to help them get more capital so that they're not so poor. I, I, I want to use a really um, inflaming example from Prince Shaw rising that's happening over in LA right now, where a, a big group of black folks uh, banded together and raised a hundred, $110 million to buy a mall called the Crenshaw mall. And they were the highest bidder. Their green money they brought to the table as Black folks who love their community, wanted to revive their ownership. And the seller chose to sell to a lower bidder that was among his racial lineage. Right? So one might use that example to talk about the inevitability of economic violence or actually how inevitable that did not have to be, but rather was an active, conscious, and purposeful choice. And folks are right now, as we speak, protesting in order to spend their green money. That, that's such a model of how this works. So, so folks who are moving into a new community have to know that um, the choice of where you send your kid to school, the city councilor that you vote for, whether you greet your neighbor on the way in and out of the house, none of that is inevitable. 
not one choice is 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 set is is set by by fate <laughs> what restaurants you patronize how you greet your 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 uh, counterpart on a street corner as you cross whether you turn your body away from someone on the street as you pass like where you put your psychic and emotional energy changes what physical gestures seem natural and inevitable to you changes what gestures seem natural and inevitable to your coworkers to your counterparts when you witness economic exclusion and and violence even through the trope of not a good cultural fit those are the places that you can confront this so-called inevitability when you're on a hiring committee when you encounter someone's name and there are some automatic assumptions about their education level, when you encounter their accent and their automatic assumptions about their intellectual prowess, those are the places where you can confront and divert these, these, this fiction of inevitability. You can make an active choice to break down your own internal conditioning to ask yourselves new questions about solutions. So th- that's, that's not me making an ask of you. I don't have to ask you to exist as a full human being in a place that has been equally invested in by my, by my lineage as has been equally invested in by your lineage. You have to ask yourself some questions about in what ways have you been conditioned politically economically, socially, neurologically, to reinforce these inevitabilities through your daily gestures. Thank you so much. That's a, I really appreciate your, your intervention around the idea of um, oppressed communities requesting things, really considering and practicing different ways of being and existing and existing socially and consuming within the context of racial capitalism. Um, For folks outside the Bay Area, um, are there ways that they could support the cultural revival project you've embarked on um, in West Oakland? There are many projects like ours. I wanna name a few. Um, because one of the things is about sharing and spreading resources. There is the Oakland um, Community Land Trust. There's the um, Northern California Community Land Trust. There are land trusts um, launching almost in every city right now, and they need support, they need donations, they need technical assistance. Um, If you would like to invest in EBPREC, and in the projects that we undertake, and our current project is the Esther's Orbit Room Cultural Revival Project, please go to www.ebprec.org and check out um, more details on the project. Um, you can donate to our work. You can become a sustainer to our work. And we, again, are the first co-op to write our own SEC paperwork and launch a direct public offering. And you can invest um, as many thousand dollars shares as you choose into our project work 
um, with a 1.5% targeted return over a five-year term. And that impact capital at 1.5% means that we can put people in houses and put people in businesses at moral rates. Esther's Orbit Room Cultural Revival Project is going to be bringing four commercial footprints to market at 50% of market rate. That means instead of people struggling to service debt, they're going to struggle to service their community. Um, so um, please be a part of that or find a land trust near you, find a co-op near you, um, give them legal technical support, um, financial planning technical support, um, support your neighbor on the street, give them, give a man a dollar. Just just break down whatever assumptions you have about direct support um, and, and choose not to filter your capital through administrative mechanisms that take 75% of those dollars and pay uh, wealthy executive directors and support all white boards in making decisions for people who are living um, the reality on the ground floor. Um, direct support is the answer. Direct action is the answer, even in your everyday um, methods. Thank you so much for joining us today, Noni. Um, as always, I really appreciate your your analysis and the work that uh, EBPREC is doing on the ground in Oakland. Thank you so much, Andrew. I much appreciate it. Invest in communities, not commodities. This conversation really highlighted the importance of supporting community efforts to build sustainability, thriving, and resistance, even in the face of massive problems. If business as usual creates dispossession and displacement and death, we have a responsibility to explore and engage with some radically different solutions. To support the work that the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative is doing, Go to ebprec.org where you can learn more about their campaigns as well as become an investor in the cooperative or make a financial donation. This episode was hosted by me, Andrew Lee. And co-produced and edited by me, Mallory Chang. You can subscribe to the Anti-Racism Daily podcast by searching Anti-Racism Daily on all of your favorite podcast networks. To subscribe to our free daily newsletter, you can go to antiracismdaily.com and you'll receive daily tactical actions to dismantle white supremacy. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you again soon.